Thank you, Clinton. Thank you for being here this morning to our guests, to our members. This is game day. As a coach, I loved game day. I loved getting dressed up and getting ready to go coach my team to victory. This is the day that we come together as a church family. It's the day we fight. And hopefully this is the day that as we leave and go throughout the rest of our week, we are hyped and ready to go to battle the devil and whatever comes our way, whatever he throws at us. We've got a great thing happening at Oldham Lane. We have had for quite some time now. This is a wonderful place to be in a wonderful church family. And you'd better believe that Satan hates it. You better believe that the devil is going to have his weapons of mass destruction aimed at us and come at us as fiercely now as he ever has. And so we need to be prepared. That's what this sermon series has been about over the last few weeks and will continue to be about over the next coming weeks is how we fight this good fight. And here's something that I would say, and we're going to talk about this as we go throughout the series. I don't think the devil really cares about winning you. I don't think he cares about you one bit. I really don't. He hates God. And it's kind of like when I was coaching, somebody would come and criticize me. Yeah, that's one thing. You start talking about my family, that's a whole other deal. You're going to get on my bad side real quick. The devil hates God. And therefore, he comes at the people God loves. I don't think he cares about you one iota. But he hates God so much that he wants to gain the victory over your soul. So be ready, right? In October of 1974, a heavyweight boxing match occurred in the country of Zaire. It was dubbed the Rumble in the Jungle. And it featured two of the best boxers of all time. You name them? George Foreman and Muhammad Ali, right? Now, George Foreman was the odds-on favorite. Ali is a legend, no doubt about it great fighter. But many people felt that George Foreman had the upper hand because he was so powerful. He packed such a punch that many people believed he would win the bout. But Muhammad Ali employed a strategy that had never been done before. It was a risk, one he called rope-a-dope. What he did for eight rounds is simply put his hands up and his arms up and let George Foreman just pummel away at him until he got more and more tired. Round after round, George Foreman unleashed a fury, flurry of punches that, that sent Muhammad Ali to the ropes, holding his arms up, and Muhammad Ali just let him do it. And finally, in the eighth round, when Foreman was really, really weary, that's when Muhammad Ali unleashed his punches, sending George Foreman to the mat, and into retirement. The whole time, Muhammad Ali is taunting George Foreman. Mosquitoes bite worse than that. Come on, George. Can't you pack a better punch than that? Who do you think you are? You're not hurting me. His idea was, I'm going to wear him down. I'm going to wear him down mentally and physically. And sure enough, the strategy worked. You might could say that George Foreman beat himself as much as Muhammad Ali won the bout. But we have an opponent, and it's not the politician, it's not the atheist, it's not the person that mocks your faith. No, it's Satan. Always has been, always will be. 
And Paul describes the fight like this. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. The real enemy is Satan. And Revelation chapter 12 and verse 10 describes him as the accuser of our brothers and sisters. He hates God. And therefore he's coming after you. Because he wants to cause God pain. He's seeking to unleash a flurry of punches until he eventually knocks us out and wins the heavyweight bout for your soul. And all the while, he is mocking and ridiculing. He is in your ear. You're not good enough. Come on, is that all you got? Trying to defeat you mentally and spiritually. He's attempting to get us to question our relationship with God, our faith. He wants to be the loudest voice in our lives. But as we say to last week, Satan only operates by consent and cooperation. He is powerful, but he has no authority over you unless you give it to him. That's the thing about the devil. He can't make you do anything. That age-old uh, excuse that the devil made me do it is never true. When Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness, he didn't force him to turn those stones into bread. He didn't push him off the pinnacle of the temple. He didn't force Jesus to bow down and worship him because he couldn't. He didn't have that authority. Satan needs permission to bring hell into your life. He needs a vehicle. He needs a carrier. So don't be one, right? Just don't be one. New Barner research about American faith and worldview shows that 51% of Americans believe in the most basic attributes of God. Now, that is down from 73% three decades ago. And among the other interesting facets of this new Barna research is that Americans are more confident about the existence of Satan than they are of God. 56% contend that the devil is an influential spiritual being, while 49% are not fully confident that God even truly exists. So a majority of people believe in the devil and that he is working in the world to some degree. But how? How is he working? What is his strategy? And that's where you and I come in. We need to figure that out so that we can be successful, right? I have the, the good fortune of being the voice of the Wiley Bulldogs. I'm the PA announcer every football season, and I love doing it. I took some sports broadcasting classes in college, uh, thinking that might be something that I want to do. So it's a hobby of mine that I get to do every Friday night when we have a home game, and I really enjoy it. But as you can imagine, the press box is a busy place on the day of a game. Not only am I up there, but there's people working the clock, there's people running the scoreboard, there's people who are journalists, who are from the newspaper, the radio station. There are coaches on both sides. You have coordinators from both teams and, and, and things like that up there in the press box. But there's another group of coaches that are not there to coach either one of the teams on the field. They're there to watch both of the teams on the field, or at least one of the teams, and they've got their laptop, they've got their notepad and pen, they've got a video camera a lot of times. They are there to scout one or both teams because they're going to have to play them later on in the season. So they come in and they take notes so that they can devise a strategy. They notice tendencies of the team that they're watching. What are their strengths? What are their weaknesses? 
And then they go back and they develop a game plan so that they're ready when they have to face that opponent later on in the season. That's what we're doing this morning. We are devising a game plan. We are scouting the enemy so that we can know how to better withstand his devices because we face a formidable foe, but we don't face an invincible one. He can be defeated. Look with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And by the way, I'm going to warn you, I told the uh, group at first service this, one of the most shocking and depressing revelations in my life over the last few years is that I can no longer read 14-point font. (laughs) So um, I'm trying to blow it up. I've got new glasses coming, so I want you to know that, uh, that I'm trying to read this as best I can. So let's go. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 and following. Now I, Paul, myself, urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am meek when face to face with you, but bold towards you when absent. I ask that when I am present, I need not be bold with the confidence with which I intend to be courageous against some who regard us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not wage battle according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying arguments and all arrogance raised against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to obedience of Christ. And we are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. Did you notice the message that Paul is sending there to Christians? He is saying... We are better than our opponent. Wow, that's earth-shattering, right? I know as a coach, when I would go and scout another team, this didn't happen very often at all, but every now and then I'd go scout another team and I'd walk away going, you know what, we can beat them. We should be able to beat them if we play well. That's what Paul is saying. You can beat this opponent. You are better than him. In fact, as long as you play your game, as long as you fight the good fight, you win. There is no reason why this opponent should defeat you. You have God on your side. It's not your war anyway. Therefore, just fight. And if you fight, you win. Notice verses 4 and 5 again. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying arguments and all arrogance raised against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. In other words, we have everything that we need. We cannot lose. Really, we shouldn't lose. So, why then does it feel like we are? That may be what some of you are thinking. So, why does it feel like I'm constantly at a disadvantage? Why does it always feel like the devil is winning? Why do I always feel inadequate or ill-equipped? Paul says, not only are you not inadequate, you are thoroughly equipped for victory. I find it interesting that Paul starts there. I've often thought that Paul was like a coach. He often used sports analogies. And he's doing coach speak right here, isn't he? What if Paul had started out by saying, well, good luck, man. I don't think you've got this one. This one's going to be tough. I hope you win. He doesn't start there. He starts by rallying the troops and saying, look, I know we're at war here. I know it feels like you could be losing, but you're not going to lose the war. You're better than your opponent. You've got God on your side, therefore you cannot lose. Look at it again. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of forces. Notice that phrase, divinely powerful. This isn't our fight. I mean, it is, but it isn't. 
The battle belongs to our God. We are fighting with Him. We are fighting for Him. He has guaranteed victory. However, we as individuals can still lose, can't we? You look at 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 2, starting in verse 10, it says, But one whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did so for your sakes in the presence of Christ, so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. Paul is speaking in context here of the sinful man that was forgiven. And so he is forgiven by the church, and Paul says, if you forgive him, I forgive him. I sign off on that forgiveness. If the sinful man repents, you take him back, you accept him, you forgive him, and you move forward, right? But if the sinful man had repented and you refused to forgive him, well, now you give the devil an opportunity. You give him an inroad to cause destruction among the body. Souls would have been lost due to their lack of forgiveness. Paul knew how Satan worked. And he knew he was working day and night to destroy the church and the faith of Christians, which is why he warns the Corinthians not to be ignorant of the devil's devices. Don't give Satan a foothold. Understand his method of operation, because when it comes to fighting the devil, ignorance is costly. And here's another thing. In fact, probably the most important thing when it comes to fighting the devil, we have to understand Satan's basic lie. And it's this. Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more cunning than any animal of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God really said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, you certainly will not die, for God knows that on the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will become like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves waist coverings. Did you catch it? Satan's basic is this you surely will not die you certainly will not die disguised as the serpent the devil's mission was to distract and to take the woman's eyes off of what God had said and turn his turn her eyes onto the forbidden fruit that was his mission to do this he starts by questioning what it's all for did God really say that Did God really say that surely you will die? I mean, come on. Is it really going to hurt anything if you just take a bite? And then he denies that there's any danger altogether, right? He says you shall not die. And finally, he suggests that not only is it okay, that there's something to be gained from it. For God doesn't want you to eat of this fruit because God is greedy and God is selfish. And God thinks that if you eat this fruit, you're going to be like him. And he doesn't want to share his authority with anyone. The strategy worked. Satan was able to remove Eve's eyes from God and focus them on the forbidden. And we learn that a moment's distraction can lead to devastating sin, right? The subtle serpent attempts to move our eyes from the long-term goal to short-term satisfaction, immediate fulfillment, distracting us long enough to do it his way rather than God's way. But why? Why would Adam and Eve sacrifice Eden 
for a piece of fruit. It's not like there wasn't other fruit. It's not like they were going to starve to death. There was plenty of fruit for them to eat. So why were they so focused on the forbidden? Well, because human beings have always had an insatiable desire for the forbidden. What was so special about that tree of knowledge of good and evil? Nothing. Nothing that I can tell. I mean, it was one tree like the others. But what was special in Eve's eyes, thanks to the serpent, was that it was forbidden. And she wanted it because she was deceived. After the serpent set, uh, sets them up, then you have the cover-up. He was the first human in history to employ a victim mentality, right? The devil made me do it. No, he may have deceived you. He didn't make you do anything, right? And we see this mentality over and over again. Nothing's ever really my fault. I can't be blamed for anything. And maybe you've done that as well. I know I have at certain points in my life. You try to get yourself off the hook. I mean, your sin is exposed. You don't want to come to grips with the fact that it was all on you. And so you try to do everything you can to blame someone or something else. It's like the, the guy who was running an errand. And he was heading back to work, and he was in a part of town called the French Fry District, and it was called that because of all the fast food restaurants. And it was a nice day, so he had his window down, and he got a whiff of the smells coming from these restaurants, pizza, tacos, burgers, and fries. And so he stops in, goes through a drive through picks up a cheeseburger and fries and a soft drink, and he does that every day for five years. And then he goes to the doctor one day. And the doctor tells him, you're not healthy. In fact, because of the decisions you have made food-wise over the last five years, if you keep doing that, you're not going to live very long. And the man says, but the car just naturally turns that way. I mean, I'm driving down the road and there's Taco Bell and it just starts steering over that direction. The fast food restaurants never told me that this would be the outcome. They never warned me when I got my food that I could die from eating this all day every day. So it's their fault. It's not my fault. It's the car's fault. It's not my fault. It's the fault of these restaurants to be strategically placed on my way to work. We see it all the time. Even today, in different forms, we see it. God knows my heart. I don't have a problem. I can quit anytime. God made me this way. We see the victim defense utilized by folks all the time in our world, and this defense started in the Garden of Eden. But Eve wasn't the only one to play the victim, right? She used the devil made me do it card. Adam blamed who? God, not the woman. I mean, yes, he blamed the woman, but he mainly blamed God, right? The woman you gave to me, God. I mean, if you hadn't given me this woman, this never would have happened. So in essence, it's more your fault than anybody's because you're the one who created the woman, right? Here's the deal. Where was Adam and Eve, excuse me, where was Adam when Eve was deceived? Scholars are kind of divided on that answer. Was Adam away while Eve had her conversation with the serpent or was he right there beside her as she was being tempted? Now, the Bible is vague about this as well. But if Adam listened to the voice of his wife as she responded to the serpent, then why didn't he step in and correct her, right? 
Notice again her response to Satan. The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. Have you ever noticed how Eve left out some key words in what God has said and even kind of changed the wording a little bit? Notice what was said concerning the forbidden fruit. Then the Lord commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for on the day that you eat from it you will certainly die. So Eve removed any and freely and added touch it and did not say surely die, she just said die. And if Adam was there with his wife at the time that she was deceived or being deceived, you would think that he would step in and correct his wife. 1 Timothy 2.14 tells us that Adam was not deceived, so why didn't he stop Eve? If Adam was not present during Eve's deception, then how did she persuade him to eat? We do not read anything about Adam listening to the voice of the serpent, only the voice of Eve. In fact, Adam blamed his wife, not the serpent. But here's what we do know. Adam was with his wife when she ate. He knew what he ate, and therefore he was sinning. If Adam wasn't deceived, then why on earth would he eat that forbidden fruit? And the answer is simple as because he chose to. Like Eve, Adam made a conscious decision to disobey. A costly decision to say the least. But that is Satan's basic lie. Is that you can sin without impunity. Others may suffer, but not you. No, you're, you're the exception to the rule. You can get away with it. You're different. That is the very essence of sin, is it not? To see ourselves as the exception to the rule. We are not bound by the same rules that govern everyone else. Satan's fundamental falsehood comes in a variety of shades, but it all boils down to, I can sin without impunity. Now, Eve was the first to buy the lie. But Satan's success certainly doesn't stop with her. Throughout the ages and on into the modern era, there have been many individuals who have been brainwashed by Satan's deception. Paul stated in himself that the devil will even disguise himself as an angel of light if need be in order to claim victims. Peter says that the devil is like a prowling lion seeking someone to devour. So knowledge is powerful. If we know our adversary and his tools of deception, then we're going to be better equipped to handle the battle when it comes to our front door. In the moral realm, just as in the physical realm, the law of cause and effect is no respecter of persons. It is completely impartial. No one is exempt. And so therefore, we must be prepared. Now, you might remember last week we talked about Sun Tzu's treatise on warfare. It is a book that has inspired many military commanders it's called The Art of War, and we quoted from that book last week, but here's another quote that I find interesting and pertinent to what we're studying this morning. It says, if you know the enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. If you know yourself but not the enemy, for every victory gained, you will also suffer a defeat. If you know neither the enemy nor yourself, you will succumb in every battle. So we can talk about scouting the enemy all day, but we'd better know something about ourselves, right? We don't only scout the enemy, we scout ourselves. We take inventory of ourselves, 
And we know our strengths and we know our weaknesses. Do you know what your weaknesses are? Do you know what your temptations are? You'd better, because I guarantee you the devil does. He is a master fisherman. He knows exactly what bait to put on the hook and dangle in front of you so that he can win you. We have to know it as well. We have to know ourselves. We have to know who we are so that we can maybe fill in the gaps where there are weaknesses. Sorry for the sports analogies, but here's another one. In high school, Mondays were film days. So you take the game Friday night, you would watch it on film to find out where you did well, but mostly where you did wrong. Seemed like coach always wanted to just point out what was wrong and not so much what was bad. And if you were the target, it was really embarrassing and it was a time that you wanted to hide because if you did something wrong, it never escaped the eye of the camera. And so coach would play, rewind, play, rewind, play, rewind over and over again. McCurley, did you see what you did there? Yes, I saw it. Thank you. Can we move forward? We must invest in scouting the enemy, but we also must invest in scouting ourselves. Taking inventory of who we are. Where are we leaving ourselves unprotected? We don't want to be exploited. We don't want to give Satan a foothold. So one of the first things that we need to do is identify our desires. What are the things that entice you to sin? And you'd better know, because I guarantee you this, the devil knows. Satan knows. He is a master fisherman. Paul said these words in Romans chapter 13, verse 14, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lust. What are the provisions of the flesh that Paul had in mind? Well, he goes on to list them. In verse 13, he says, carousing, drunkenness, sexual promiscuity, sensuality, strife, jealousy, just to name a few. When you make provision for something, you provide for it. And Paul says, don't feed the hand that bites you. Don't be the devil's lunch. Whatever it is, be willing to remove it. Don't feed the flesh. And we'll talk more about that later, but I just want to give you really quickly three things in which we can, we can kind of shore up our weakness and hopefully not let the devil have an inroad. The first one is, don't look. Job said, I've made a covenant with my eyes. Matthew 5, 29 and 30, Jesus essentially says, it, it's better to be blind than to be damned. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out, right? Much of what entices us is connected to our sense of sight. And the process of sin is often associated with what we see. So filter what you watch. Filter what you look at. Don't let your eyes bounce. If only Eve had kept her eyes focused on what God had said and not on the forbidden. Don't let your gaze shift to what can lead you astray. So don't look and also don't listen. Don't believe the lie of instant gratification. What satisfies for the moment will destroy in the long term. Again, when Jesus was faced with the temptation in the wilderness from the devil, he responded with the word of God. It is written, it is written, it is written. Jesus allowed the voice of God to be the loudest in his life. And that's what we have to do as well. Don't listen to the basic lie. The psalmist said, your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. Don't give the devil an ear. Tune him out and let the voice of God be the loudest in your life. And finally, don't think. Sinful acts begin in the brain. And therefore, we need to guard our minds. We cannot let our minds run free and then stop short of sin. 
what we think matters. And Satan will, will attack us where we're left unprotected, right? And all too often, that's the mind. When boxer Joe Lewis was in his prime, he fought a guy named Two-Ton Tony Galento. Now, Two-Ton Tony was a relative unknown. There was no reason in the world Joe Lewis should lose to Two-Ton Tony Galento. This was kind of a tune-up fight. But as his name suggests, Two-Ton was rather large. And at the beginning of the fight, round one, Two-Ton landed a sucker punch that sent Joe Lewis flying across the ring and sprawling out on the mat. And Joe Lewis jumped right back up and got back to fighting. At the end of the round, the ring manager for Joe Lewis scolded him. So what are you doing jumping right back up? You know you're supposed to lay there and gather yourself until he counts to nine, then you get up. And Joe Lewis said, what, give him time to rest? Joe Lewis hopped right back up and got right back in the fight. And that is exactly what we have to do. The devil's going to sucker punch you. That's a given. You're going to find yourself laid out, sprawled out on the mat. You've got to determine to get back up and to keep fighting. We are better than our opponent. Victory is assured. So just keep fighting, right? Keep fighting until the bell rings. The bout is over. And we get our crown. Now, I don't know what state you're in this morning. My guess is in a congregation of a thousand people, there are folks who are hurting. My guess is there are folks who are wounded, who are beaten up and bruised. And my guess is some of you are here this morning. Let us help you. Let this be a family that acts like family and rallies together and weeps with those who weep and rejoices with those who rejoice. Let us be a family of God's people that pick each other up and even carry each other sometimes until they're ready to get back on their feet. Does that describe you this morning? Are you someone who is ready to study the Bible? Maybe you're ready to take the next step in your faith. Perhaps you're ready to begin a daily walk with God, putting Christ on in baptism, receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit, and living a life anew. Whatever your need is, let us help you. As we have said throughout this series, there is no good reason for you to leave here a loser.